Well, good morning again, everybody. I hope you had a wonderful um, Christmas and New Year's. By the way, does anybody know what today is other than Sunday? Anybody know what today is? Any nobody know what tomorrow is other than Monday? Today is the 12th day of Christmas. You're all thinking that we're a bunch of slackers because we still got our Christmas stuff up, right? Actually, if you're Ukrainian, your Christmas is tomorrow on January 6th. Now, when I was growing up on the 12th day of Christmas, my mother used to call this Old Christmas Day. Because you know the 12 days of Christmas, right? The first one is September 25, and then count forward, you end up with the 12th one today. This is all from the house of useless knowledge here at Glad Tidings Church. But what we're going to talk about now is not, but I do have an announcement. I want to congratulate uh, Sarah uh, Cresswell and Josh Prescott. They are going to be united in marriage here at Glad Tidings this coming Saturday. And uh, uh, Sarah and Josh, are you here? I didn't see you earlier. If not, well, th- th- they kind of share here with us in Lansing, but they're going to see the light and come to Glad Tidings. Uh, but uh, anyway, they're getting married and we're just delighted for them. And so uh, that's, I think, is going to take place too in the afternoon. I'm doing the service, so I guess I better figure out when that's going to happen. So we are in our 13th week of the story. I'll explain that all in a minute for those of you that are new or visiting Glad Tidings. But let's stand together. And our text this morning is uh, 1 Kings. And uh, we're reading uh, chapter 3, verses 4 to 14. And this is called The King who added all. And this is, I'm reading the blue, you're reading the white, and this is what it said, the king, which is Solomon, by the way. And Solomon went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a burnt, a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among your people you have chosen, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice. I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me, and keep my decrees and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Well done. Father, we pause 
to acknowledge that you are here in this place in the person of Jesus Christ through the power and the agency of the Spirit. And we ask, Father, as we look into your word today, that you would challenge us again. Lord, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us a voice to speak, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and particularly as we go out from this place, from this property, from this facility, from this building, and we go out into our lives, into our marriages and our families and our friends. Lord, where we go to work, where we go to school, and where we get our services to live out what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We ask that that same Holy Spirit would help us to do so in meaningful, tangible, and physical ways. And we ask this, of course, in his name, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I thought maybe coming back from Christmas and New Year's and the holidays, I thought that maybe a great way to start this morning would be by resetting the scene or resetting the stage. Now, for those of you that are new to Glad Tidings or those of you that are visiting this morning, in September, we started a 31-week series called The Story. And the story is really about how God has chosen to reveal his purpose and his will to us in the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a collection of hundreds of unrelated stories, but rather is just one story and one narrative that starts at the beginning of Genesis and works all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. Now, in this story, there are five movements, and the timeline goes something like this. The first movement is Genesis chapter 1 to 11, and there we are told the story of creation. We're told the story of Adam and Eve, and we're told the story of how Adam and Eve were unfaithful, and they sinned, and they plunged humanity and creation into what we refer to as the fall and into sin. Movements two to five are Genesis chapter 12 all the way through to Genesis chapter 22. And as we have observed in the past, we could look at the story like this, that Genesis chapter 12 to Revelation chapter 22 is the undoing of everything that happened in Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, we begin the story of how God plans to get us back to him. It begins in Genesis 12 with God choosing Abraham. And then, of course, we know as we move forward that Abraham has a son named Isaac, miraculously. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob, he has 12 sons. Uh, Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and these 12 sons of Jacob or of Israel form what we refer to as the family nation of Israel. And it will be through this family nation of Israel, of Jacob's sons, that the solution will come. And the solution, of course, is none other than Jesus Christ. 
Now the second movement runs all the way through to the end of the Old Testament to Malachi chapter 4. Movements 3, 4, and 5 are picked up in the New Testament. Movement 3 are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then movement 4 is Acts to the book of Jude. And then movement 5 is the book of Revelation. But there's also this. The story that we are talking about, the story of God's redemptive history and God's redemptive plan is really the story of two stories, what we refer to as the upper story and the lower story. Now, the upper story, the bigger story, the most important story, is the story that God is writing. This is the grand narrative of how God is accomplishing his higher purpose and his will and his plan. The lower story is our story. It's your story. It's my story. And one of the keys is to figure out and to learn and to know how our lower stories are woven together with God's upper story and then vice versa. How God's upper story is woven together with our lower stories, our individual stories, our individual lives. Now, that brings us to chapter 13 in the story Bible, which is our text this morning, which is 1 Kings chapter 3, 4, 4 to 14, but it also brings us to Israel's superlative king, Solomon. Now, Solomon is the second son of David and Bathsheba, who is the widow of Uriah the Hittite. Solomon's name means peace or friend of God. So, when we hear the name Solomon, what comes to mind? What comes to mind? Yell it out. What else? What else? Well, there's numbers of things. First of all, the first thing that comes to our mind, of course, is wisdom. But Solomon was smart, he was knowledgeable. What comes to mind is wealth and greatness, power, sex. The man had 700 wives. We'll talk about that a little bit later. He was an author, he wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon and he was a builder. He built in his time, constructed some of the most grand structures in all of Israel and in all of Israel's history. And one of those, of course, is the temple. Now, if you were asked, who is the wisest person who ever lived? Most people, matter of fact, many people who don't even know the Bible would probably know it was Solomon. He is the wisest person that ever lived. Of course, we're understanding outside of Jesus Christ. So just let that be a disclaimer. Now, let me ask you this question. If God said to any of us, me, you, us, in a dream, in a prayer, ask me for anything you want me to give you, how would we answer if God gave you and me the opportunity to ask him for anything that we wanted him to give us, how would we answer that question? Now, 
I've often read Solomon's answer and his, and his request was for wisdom, for discernment. And I thought, man, I wish I were smart enough to think up that answer, right? But Solomon was wise before he was wise. But probably the most famous story of Solomon's wisdom is in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 to 28. Let me tell you the story. The story is about two women who have two babies who live together. The women live together. And through the night, one of the first mother rolls over onto her child and accidentally kills the baby. So she takes the dead baby, baby switches it with the second mother's baby, the living baby. But of course, the second mother wakes up in the morning and realizes, hey, this is not my child, and she knows what's going on. Well, a huge dispute breaks out about who the living baby belongs to, and they end up talking to Solomon. So they bring their situation into Solomon. And Solomon says, you know the story, right? Solomon says, here's how we're going to solve this. Bring me a sword. Bring me a big sword. Put the baby on this table here. And what we're going to do is we're going to cut the baby in half. And one mother can have one half. And the other mother can have the other half. And the woman, the mother of the dead baby says, yes, that's exactly what we need to do. But the mother of the living child, the Bible says, was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. And of course, Solomon knew exactly then whose child it was, and he gives the living baby to the proper mother. And then we come to somebody else who is pretty significant, and that is the queen of Sheba. Now, 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 to 3 tells us that when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, which is an interesting comment, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. And Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain. And we're also told in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 4 and uh, 5, that the queen of Sheba was absolutely overwhelmed not just by Solomon's wisdom, but by the happiness of his servants and how much stuff was on his table and how much stuff was in his kingdom, and the list goes on and on. As a matter of fact, to add more to that, 1 Kings chapter 10, 24 says these words, the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom that God had put in his heart. Now, Solomon is not only the wisest person that ever lived, but he is also the wealthiest person who has ever lived. Now, comparatively, comparatively, Solomon was the richest person who ever lived. That we are told that in 1 Kings chapter 10, that King, Solomon's, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Now, he reigned for 40 years, and in those 40 years, Solomon himself and the nation of Israel had never known the luxury and the wealth and the prosperity that they experienced of any other time in the history of the nation. 
His government prospered. It was 40 years of absolute peace. And then we're told in 1 Kings sort of an idea of how wealthy he really was. We're told in 1 Kings chapter 10 that every year annually that Solomon, the tribute brought to Solomon was 666 talents of gold. Now, for those of us that live in the real world, that breaks down to this. 18,125 kilograms of gold. Now, for those of us that need the conversion, that means 39,958 pounds of gold. Or to put it even clearer, every year, 20 tons of gold was given to King Solomon. 20 tons. 1 Kings 10.27 says that Solomon made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. Now, coupled together with that, not only, was he, not only did he have 666 talents of gold, but we are told in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, that he had 12,000 horses and 1,400 chariots from Egypt. But to add more, we are told in 1 Kings 11.3 that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now it seems to me that Solomon's wealth and wisdom is matched by his virility. Like, surely to goodness, this has to be some sort of metaphor. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, 700 wives and three, 1,000? Well, I, th that's just too easy to go down a laneway with this. I'm not going there. So many things to say, so little time. <laughs> but all of this and more made Solomon the greatest king who ever lived. We are told in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 1.12, it says this, that he was his wisdom and his knowledge and his wealth and his possessions and his honor, such as no king who was before him ever had and none after him will ever after. Just file that in the back of your mind. So the only word, the only word that we can use for Solomon is the word superlative. He was the most, the best, the greatest. That's the only word we can use. Now, but here's a question. <clears throat> when a person has everything, and Solomon had it all, when a person has everything, what can go wrong? Well, the answer to that question is everything. Everything can go wrong. And that brings us to this, the end from the beginning. There is a very troubling a sentence at the end of our text. Verse 14, that most of us sort of miss. 
And I almost missed it if the truth were told. And this is what it says. If you walk in obedience to me, God is speaking, and keep my decrees and commandments as David, your father, did, I will give you long life. Now, we are told a number of things about Solomon, but I've already mentioned the three things that he did that God said through the prophet Moses, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, he said these words. The king, when he comes about, when you make provision for the king, he must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. You must not get horses from Egypt. Number two, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And three, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And we know that Solomon sinned in all three areas. He accumulated large amounts of gold. He accumulated horses and chariots from Egypt. And he was in overabundance of wives and concubines. But here's the deal. You see, the issue was not horses and chariots. The issue is not abundance of spouses, although I can see the complications. And the issue is not gold. You see, it is not what we do with them, or rather, what they do with us and to us. That's the problem. Horses and chariots from Egypt represent the things that we as God's people, you and I, put our trust in that give us a false sense of security. And I think we may be learning that no amount of health or youthfulness or money or education or experience or career or position or job is enough to give us a sense of security. His faithfulness is my confidence. Matter of fact, the psalmist picks this up. David says, before Solomon, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Change the word horses for whatever it is that we put our trust in that gives us a sense of security, or rather, or more particularly, or more exacting, a false sense of security. And secondly, it's not about spouses and concubines and wives. It's about relationships with the wrong people that jeopardize our relationship with God. There's a long text in 1 Kings chapter 11 that talks about Solomon's descent into idolatry. And I think it's worth reading, although it's long, because it gives us some sense of this tension of how is it possible for a man as bright and gifted and wise as Solomon to move so far away from God? But listen to what it says. And King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. 
They were from nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts away from their gods. After their gods, sorry. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed the Ashtaroth, the goddess, of the Sidonians and Moloch, the detestable gods of the Amorites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. And on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemos, the, the detestable god of Moab, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Amorites. And he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And Paul sums this up in 1 Corinthians and he says this, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. And it's not money, it's not gold, that's the problem. The problem, and Paul tells us this as well, it is the love of money and the inordinate, uh, inordinate desire for money that can create the unsettling of our contentment and make us restless for the wrong things and can cause us to focus on the, on the things that do not bring about true success. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6 about the problem with the love of money. But here's the kicker, here's the kicker, here's the catch. No one, no one in this room, no one watching online, no one in the history of their lives, and probably in human history, wakes up in the morning and asks themselves this question, how can I ruin my life today? Nobody asked that question. Nobody. And like Solomon, like us, spiritual failure is a slow burn. This is like the analogy of the frog in the kettle. Now, most of us are aware of this experiment that was done with frogs. And um, they took, a, they, the experience is that the researcher took a frog, put it in a uh, lukewarm pot, uh, sorry, in a pot of lukewarm water, and by increments increased the temperature of the water, and the frog does not pay attention to or does not, uh, or ignores the increase in increment of temperature, and the frog eventually is cooked to death. Now, when I think about it, that's an, a disgusting experiment. When I was a kid, 1970, a rock band by the name of Three Dog Night came out with a song. They called it a silly song or a kid's song, but it went to the top of the charts. And the opening line goes something like this, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. He was a good friend. Anybody remember that? Raise your hand. Now you're dating yourselves. There you go. Well, let me just tell you, not only is Jeremiah a bullfrog, but so is Solomon. 
and he was cooked alive spiritually. And so, can you and I be bullfrogs? If we do not pay attention to the possibility and the potential of the slow burn of spiritual failure in our lives, we can be spiritually cooked to death. Materially, relationally, mentally. You see, Solomon's spiritual failure did not happen in one day, it didn't happen overnight. It was a slow burn that took 40 years. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, it says this, And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And the first thing we notice The first fallout is that there is a divided kingdom. For 40 years, Solomon has known nothing but peace. Solomon will die of natural causes about the age 60. And he will be the last ruler of a united kingdom of Israel. Shortly after his death, the nation will divide into the northern nation of Israel, the ten tribes, and the southern smaller kingdom of Judah. And not only will the nation be divided and his kingdom divided, but his family will be divided. Rehoboam will rule the smaller kingdom of Judah, and his son Jeroboam will rule the much larger kingdom of Israel. And here's the point. Here's the point. If it can happen to the wisest, wealthiest, smartest, and greatest person that has ever lived, then it can happen to us, to me, and to you. So how do we stay out of hot water. First of all is this, pay attention. Get conscious, the Bible has another saying for it, it says, be alert, wake up. Invite accountability. You wanna know if you're being cooked incrementally and you're in the flow of spiritual failure, ask the people who love you the most your spouse, your siblings, your best friends, people who will tell you the truth if we have jumped into a kettle of lukewarm water and give the people on the outside of the pot permission to tell us the truth. Be humble. Accept what they say to us. And of course, ask for wisdom. James tells us that if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously, and here it is, without finding fault. And the last thing is, desire to finish strong and pray for it. 